Blog Talk Radio. Lovely to hear that theme song again. It's been a while, although I still haven't faded out properly over this entire time. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 11th episode of a Metsian podcast with Sam, Rich, and Mike. I am Sam, the converted Mets fan, and we're going to – I'm calling this the backwards episode. Uh, of course, uh, if, if you guys are Seinfeld fans out there, and many of you Mets fans are, uh, you know that there was a backwards episode where you saw each scene – basically reversed uh, once upon a time in the Seinfeld episode. And uh, we're going to try our format differently because I can't just go right into the same, almost basically the same exact rants that almost feel even fresher and realer and more exacerbated at this point. But we're going to save those for for, uh, the end of the show. And we're going to go with number 11 to start the show, uh, the uniform number 11, as well as uh, fittingly 2011. See, for me, uh, I I feel as if 2018 will most likely come up at some point in all of that. Uh, Somehow, someway, it will naturally evolve into that. There will be players that remind us of it. There will be Sandy Alderson that reminds us of it. There's many, many different things and ways, uh, but we're still going to go backwards and start with number 11. It's it's the backwards format. Without further ado, I'll bring on my podcast compadres, and we'll start with, with Mr. Rich Sparago, who uh, had some choice words that can, I, I don't care whether he says at this point on this uh, this show. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so so I'm going to keep it clean for now and say good evening, Sam. Good evening, Mike. And uh, you know, I'm, we have a lot to talk about, and um, unfortunately, none of it's good. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. And I'm sure, as you said, Sam, we'll get to these topics as we go. Aren't you excited? No. We've been doing this since 2013, uh, us collective. uh, And without further ado, I'll also bring on uh, the third member of our party, uh, the last but not least for sure, and that is Mike LaColant of Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Mike, I I cannot introduce you without mentioning Brooklyn, of course. You know what? I'm glad you said just that way because the worse this team gets, the more I'm immersing myself in 19th century baseball. You know, call it avoidance, call it what you will, but that's where I am. Well, I mean, I've seen Solo six times, so I understand escapism right now, but you want to stay within the baseball realm. So your escapism right now is 19th century baseball, and I completely understand that. So... Without further ado, why don't we throw back the clock before discussing anything regarding the historical nature of what's going on with us right now. Um, we're going to go with number 11. Number 11, that's the episode number, and we like to reminisce and look back on the uniform numbers that have uh, uh, worn uh, the players who have worn number 11 in Mets history. And uh, we're, we're going to start. You guys have this uh, the list up yet? And and uh, I'm, I'm seeing who the the most recent one is, and and that's uh, that is in 2018. So just like I said, we'll we'll eventually get there. But but Rich, let's start with you, Rich. You have number 11 up uh, yet? I do. Well, so so when you're looking at this list, and there's a lot of names, and so it's a pretty all over the place list to talk about. So so. 
I I think I know who you're going to say, but who would you say is number 11 for you, just jumping out there? Well, you know, it's, it's a tough one, Sam. It really is because a lot of these guys I really, you know, some of them I grew up with, some of them I really liked, and, and it's hard for me to pick one. Um, but, but what I'm going to do here, and there are two of them that I really want to talk about, but I'm going to go with the guy I grew up with wearing number 11, and that's Wayne Garrett. Um, Wayne was most noted for his crop of red hair sitting under his uh, Royal Mets blue cap. And, um, and Wayne was a third baseman who had a little bit of power, uh, very good defensively, didn't hit for high average, was sort of like a poor man's Greg Nettles. And if any Yankee fan of this, no, I know he wasn't as good as Greg Nettles. But he was sort of like that same kind of player. Great glove, not a high average, a little bit of pop. And, um, and what I remember most about Wayne Garrett, what, what some people don't realize, is he played some shortstop. And I'm going to go to one particular incident. In 1973, when the Mets were doing their historic run, it would be nice to have one of those this year, huh? Anyway, uh, when they were doing their historic run, in September toward the National League pennant, you know, qualifying for the playoffs and ultimately winning the pennant, going to the World Series. A lot of people remember the ball on the wall play, right, where um, it was Richie Zisk who hit the ball for the Pirates, and uh, the ball miraculously landed on top of the Shea left field wall, and instead of going over, which everything that I know about physics would suggest because the ball was moving that way, it should go over, but instead... It hit the very top of the wall, went straight up in the air. Cleon Jones picked it up, picked it up uh, out of the sky, essentially. Fired a strike to Wayne Garrett, who was playing shortstop that night, because they had taken Harrelson out of that game. And Wayne Garrett threw to Ron Hodges at the plate, and they got the out of the plate in, in extra innings. That was, I believe, in the 11th inning. The Mets won it in the bottom of the inning. So Wayne Garrett stands out to me for his orange hair for that particular play for being a non-spectacular but very likable, reliable player. And and if I want to – I'm going to mention one more guy, if I may. And that's Frank Tavares. Now, here's a guy who came to the Mets when things were just dreadful. You know, he came to the Mets in the 79 season, traded for Tim Foley. And what I liked most about Frank Tavares was he had led the league in stolen bases in his career – and he came to the Mets, and, and he was—he um, he made some errors at shortstop. He wasn't a great glove, but he was lightning fast. And when he got on base, as a very dear friend of mine said, we both like Frank Tavares. Said at least Frank Tavares was a threat when he got on bases. You know, got on the bases. He made the pitcher think. And so, in a time when the Mets were dreadful in 1979, he was exciting. You know, he would get a single, and it'd be like, okay, Tavares is going to steal second. Maybe he'll steal third. It was kind of fun to watch him. So those are my two guys, number eleven. And how about you, Mike? Who jumps off uh, from this list for you? I'm going to stick with the same two guys for now. Frank Tavares, funny thing about that trade. When it went down, I thought the Mets got the better uh, of the two players. I I was not a Tim Foley fan. And sure enough, in 1979, Tim Foley turned out being the best player for the Pirates, and they win uh, the World Series that season. You know, he fit in perfectly. Uh, yep. But I did like Frank Tavares. Uh, he, he was a bit of a spark plug. And I really did think we got the better of the deal. It's just that Tim Foley, you know, uh, was the beneficiary of that whole thing. Uh, and, and, you know, like Rich says, Wayne Garrett, he's the guy. Uh, anything related 1976, 
boy, you, you made a, a hell of an impression uh, on this kid's life. So uh, he's right up there, you know, j- just as he is with Rich. Uh, Lenny Randall, you know, I, I came to like him a lot. He was a really good ball player. It was only after the fact that I learned that he was a little bit of a miscreant, right, Rich? <laughs> yes. I like Lenny a lot too, Mike. And, and you know, like I said, I learned that after the fact. But while he played here, you know, not having an idea, I was still a, a young a young guy back then. Um, no, a tremendous ball player, versatile, and he hit over 300 for for the Mets, which in those particular years was, was unheard of. You know, so he was nice to have around. He didn't last very long, and you know, I learned that he wasn't the, the, the nicest guy on the planet. Uh, and somebody else I'll, I'll throw out here. I don't want to steal them all, even though it's a, it's a lengthy list. Uh, Dick Schofield, I just, you know, I just can't get him out of my mind. Am I confusing him? I am confusing him. Uh, am, I, am I confusing him for, for uh, 2000? You're thinking of well, I mean, this Mike... guy's 92. Uh, I'm thinking of DeSarcina, right? Um, Who am I thinking of? Mike Bordick, maybe, the guy they picked yeah, up. Yeah, Mike Bordick. Okay, I, I apologize to Dick Schofield. My apologies, because uh, I was just going to go all over that. Uh, Mike Bordick, whenever I mean, we get around to that. Him. He, was, he was on the 92 <laughs> team. I, I wouldn't give him an apology. Well, you know what? <laughs> I, I wouldn't put that on him. I would put that on Al Harrison, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So my apologies there. I was going to go off, and thank you for correcting me. Uh, but being as we're – you know, on the topic of Miss Cretans, Vince Coleman's on this list. Uh, Mr. Famous for uh, throwing fireworks at fans in, in the parking lot at Dodger Stadium. I even like seeing if we're going to go all the way to the list. And I, I think I'll save the the worst for last, as I keep <laughs> saying this is a backwards episode. We'll save that worst one for last. Uh, Nori uh, Chika Aoki, the September Wonder. Uh, it's just interesting to see his name there. Obviously, most recently, Ruben Tejada, um, who actually kind of came up in some fashion last night. Uh, you guys all saw the, the Terry video, and I think with uh, 2011, that would be a good way of talking about Mr. Terry Collins and the notorious video that has dropped, uh, the hot mic. And um, uh, Joe McEwing, nice to see Joe McEwing's name. It's always uh, just one of those utility players that you wish everybody could be, you know, unlike some of our utility players who forget to step on second. <clears throat> um, let's see. Duke Snyder, of course, one of the uh, one of the, the Dodgers that, that were brought in to kind of bring the fans back. What's cool about Duke Snyder and his tenure here was that he – one of the few highlight videos of 1963 that's out there – he hits a game-winning home run, and you really see the fan base and, and how uh, uh, powerful, even with such a losing team, it was at the time and how joyful it was when moments like that happened, especially with old-town heroes. Um, yeah, of course, Wayne Garrett uh, seemed like, you know, just one of the, one of the, the uh, utility third basemen until they finally were able to, for a hot second, have a, a regular in David Wright. Um and, yeah, Corey Lytle, that's always, you know, a sad, uh, bittersweet name to see. Uh, Ramon Castro, that's, uh, you know, a backup catcher extraordinaire. Arjanus Reyes, there was like there was one of those moments where we were like, oh, maybe one of these guys will stick, and, and now we'll have Reyes and Reyes on both sides. Yeah, all right. 
And Anderson Hernandez, uh, who just uh, I remember making a lot of uh, great plays. But I'm gonna I'm gonna loop back around at the end to the last but not least for number eleven, and we're gonna go to 2011 before uh, before moving on to anything else. So, guys, 2011. Rich, I'm gonna start with you as I get the the uh, page up, but. When I say the 2011 New York Mets, what's the first thing that jumps to your your mind? Um, The beginning of the rebuild. Uh, Because when you think about that season, they had brought Terry Collins in to manage the team, and Sandy was there, and you knew exactly what he was there to do. He was there to, to build a team on a budget, and you knew it was coming. So in 2011, if you remember, they started off 5 and 12. They started off horribly. And then by the late July, early August time frame, they actually hit, or maybe it was mid-July before the trading deadline, they, they, they hit 500, maybe a game or two over. And it was like, hmm, you know, well, we still have a decent team here. They were a couple games over 500 in late July. And then the Beltron trade came. Then it was like, oh, you know, the fact that they've played well and they're a couple games over 500 is not going to stop this horrible thing we've been dreading. They're going to rebuild. So there, there went, you know, K-Rod went, and then Beltron went. And then at the end of the season, it was like, what are they going to do with Reyes? And Reyes left. And so when I think of 2011, I think of it as the beginning of the end. It was the end of a certain era. We, we, all, know, we all knew it was coming, the rebuild. And it was sort of a sad year for me because the guys, you know, that I like, like Beltron and Reyes and uh, – you knew those guys were being shipped out, and you didn't know how long the rebuild would take. So I, I don't have a lot of pleasant memories of 2011. How about you, Mike? Mixed emotions. Uh, I'll tell you why. You, you know, like Rich, uh, the rebuild was upon us. And I was all in. I was all in for the rebuild. I was all in on Sandy Alderson. I was all in on the change. Maybe not so much Terry Collins. That might have been Wally Backman's best chance ever of becoming manager of the Mets, but it didn't work out for him. Uh, but I had questions about it because Sandy Alderson was thrown in the Will Pond's lap. It's not like they performed this uh, smart interrogation process throughout the landscape of baseball, scoured the land for a general manager. No, Bud Selig made him available. And the problem I have with that is since 1980 and after Frank Cashin, or put it this way, Frank Cashin put in place Jerry Hunsicker, Joe McLevain, and Steve Phillips. Steve Phillips put in place Jim Duquette and Omar Minaya, which is to say that those two gentlemen gave the Wilpons all the resources to, to sustain themselves with general managers for nearly 30 years. And I accused them then of becoming an inbred organization. They never had to go out and, you know, bust their ass to go find a good qualified GM because they always had one at the ready, be it in-house, or in McLevain's case, they had to go beg him to come back because he accepted the job in San Diego, and Omar Minaya's case because he was the general manager in Montreal, and they rang the phone and begged him to come back meaning they don't know how to go out there and seek out a qualified GM. 
And then I was happy that they were finally having to go off campus to find one after they fired Minaya. But lo and behold, uh, Selig threw Alderson in their lap, and they hired him with haste. The interview process stopped. And the point is, till this day, Jeff Wilpon is yet to hire, legitimately hire, a general manager. Cashin, his pop, was responsible for all those in-house hires. And now that we're on the verge of Alderson either retiring or, or them firing him, I feel we're right back in the same place where this ownership doesn't know how to go out and legitimately seek out a qualified general manager. How's that for an answer? 2011, everybody. Uh, and here's the crazy thing, like you said, Rich, you know, them being close to, you know, contending in some fashion. Uh, they ended 77-85, and I think the fact that they sold off is, is shown right there, and the fact that they didn't lose 90 games is really uh, speaks to how much fun it kind of was for a hot second to watch this team. I mean, I remember a lot of games from 2011, both wins and losses. I, I spent a lot of time at City Field, um, and it was the last season that we had to deal with the drop Black Shadow. Um, the uh, R.A. Dickey kind of solidified himself as, as a not one-hit wonder. Um, and Jose Reyes won the batting title, mind you. It, it was certainly a little bittersweet with the whole thing. But I don't completely look back on it uh, badly, Rich, just because it was the start of something new. Now, unfortunately, we may be at the same end of the cycle that we always see with this team, other than when they sustained seven years of success in the 80s, which is the most successful they'd ever been for a chunk of time. And um, so, yeah, Terry Collins, I mean, we've, we have this is Terry Collins' first year, and we have bashed him for a long time. And there was a video last night where you saw how upset and angry he was that we didn't even get a warning when Chase Utley was thrown at in 2016 as retribution for number 11, Ruben Tejada. So um, I don't think you can really say, and I'll start with you, Rich, that in retrospect, oh, you missed Terry, whatnot. Um, but right now, Mickey Callaway is certainly leaving a lot to, to be desired, considering that, you know, the 12 games we saw at the beginning uh, certainly do not outweigh the amount of games that they have been uh, 1962 bad, really. Well, you know, you raise a good point, Sam. And, you know, and that video has more people talking about Terry Collins now than, than – before, you know, and, and a lot of it was bad, but the guy's name is being mentioned more in the past day than in the past several years, and uh, because of that video, you know, and it is entertaining. But anyway, um, you know, about the whole Terry Collins thing and Mickey Calloway and all of that, you know, the analogy I think about is if you're in a horrible personal relationship, right, horrible relationship, it just, it had to end, and so it ends, then you move on to another relationship, and that one's not so great either. That doesn't mean you want to go back to the one that was horrible, though. It just means that, you know, maybe you have to keep moving on. So, uh, in, in short, it, it, what's happening with Mickey and watching the video and all that in no way, shape, or form, none, 
makes me want, miss Terry Collins, makes me want Terry Collins back, makes me think, oh, my God, things weren't so bad when Terry was here. No, 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 none of that. He's gone. He should have been gone. Um, Mickey has, you know, I think he, it's a learning curve for him. You know, some of the moves are very strange. And I don't mean, hey, why didn't you go to this reliever instead of that one? It's not double switching. You know, it's the stuff that jumps out as someone who hasn't quite learned the craft yet. Um, well, I mean, now, can, can I can I interject real quick and say, like, little sure. things, though, that, like, little things like not pinch running with Jose Reyes. Now, I mind you, he has lost a step, but if he's on this team right now, why aren't you doing little things like that? It's just things that maybe it's because he hasn't been in the National League. I don't know, but it's little things like that that you just go, get creative. You're right. No, you're totally right. Mickey, Mickey's body of work leaves a ton to be desired. Now, the one thing I will say is, to be fair and balanced about this, is the work of the starting pitching has been damn good. And I know the statistics, and I'm not going to bore people with that, but the work has been very good over the past month. And to some degree, you know, if you're going to knock Mickey, fine, but he is a pitching guy. And to some degree, if, if the starting pitching is doing well, you have to give him a you know a tip of the cap, him and Dave Island. You, have, you know you have to at least give him that to be fair. Um, but but again, you know the whole Terry Collins thing. Yes, his name has popped up, but my opinion, I'm interested in what you guys have to say. Doesn't make me want him back. Doesn't make me miss him. I laugh at the video too. I, I think it's hysterical, quite frankly. And um, and Mickey, I think, has to be evaluated on his own merits. And and that body of work has not been impressive. Um, I don't think they're going to make a move managerially now. I don't think, I don't think it'll happen all year, regardless of what happens. So we have to live with Mickey for a while, and we're watching on the job training. Yeah, you can't really uh, send a manager to too much spring training, apparently. And, you know, he he hasn't managed at any level. He, he is now managing at the major league level. Nobody ever talked about the idea of coming up through the ranks uh, while he had to do it. Um, and unfortunately still hasn't gotten his chance, probably just because of his volatile personality. But as we saw last night, Terry Collins has somewhat of a volatile personality. Uh, Mike, it, I'm not sure if you've ever watched the show Deadwood, but that's what it reminded me of. That, that he, was, he spoke like a character from, from the 1870s in Deadwood. <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I, I know some of that. Uh, but I will agree with a couple of things. I don't miss Terry. I believe in moving on. So, uh, And good play and winning, you know, render managers an inconsequential matter. That's all I can say. Sure, Callaway is a rookie, and it shows, and he's making mistakes. And, Sam, you brushed on it. Uh, I heard it on the radio. I wish I could tell you which show it was. So this isn't my idea, but they pointed out that, you know, Callaway's missed a couple of double switches. Okay, the game he got ejected, his coaches missed a couple of uh, missed a, a double switch, and they're all minor, uh, all American League guys. <laughs> so is this really an American versus National League thing? Who knows? Uh, maybe, perhaps, pure coincidence. Uh, but Mickey, uh, you know, like Rich says, he's making rookie mistakes, and uh, some are more noticeable than others. Uh, but me, I'm from the school where players, uh, you know, render managers inconsequential or, 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 you know, 
get all the limelight put on them because of their poor play. This is on the players. Yeah, the players have uh, have not been well at all, and that's where it all comes back to everything that we don't want to talk about, <laughs> which is management and the front office um, and the owners. And, you know, I first of all, let's round out number 11, and this is, brings us to 2018. Uh, I, I I think we'll save, uh, we'll give a little shout out at the end before the last word to the Dodgers and the Giants of 1911. Oh. But, you know, we're we're in this now. Um, Please do, because so there's actually Batista, a lot to talk about. Oh, well, well, of course, but Jose Batista is number 11 right now. He is the current number 11. And Rich, uh, you know, Sandy, um, he's brought this manager in, but he's also put him with the players. Um, what exactly is being exposed? Is it Sandy and his non-creativity? Is it the fact that the Wilpons are very, very, you know, kind of wishy-washy about anything. Uh, what, What is your opinion about certain things of that nature? Well, uh, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think my opinion is probably a bit contrarian, you know, to a lot of people. Um, the Wilpons are not without blame here. They're not above reproach, but – I'm looking at something right now online about the baseball payrolls going into the 2018 season. And what I'm seeing is that the Mets have the fifth highest, actually. They're at 172. Um, Now, again, that may have fluctuated. It may be they're the sixth or seventh highest when you factor in different things. But they're they're in the top third. Let's at least say that. They're in the top third of Major League Baseball. So that said, are the Wilpons cheap? Uh, yeah, maybe a little bit. You know, are they not spending like a New York team? Maybe a little bit. But, but my bigger gripe goes with the general manager because, look, you know, they're not spending. I could scroll down this list, and, and you look down at, at the Cardinals at 146, uh, the Rockies at 129. You know, the Mets are not in that area. They're, they're not the Marlins. They're not the Cincinnati Reds. So the Wilpons – if we're not happy with what they're spending, that's one thing. But factually, they are spending a fair amount of money. So I go to the general manager, and here's why. The reason I go to the general manager is Sandy Alderson has a player profile that he likes, that he's liked since the late 80s in Oakland. He likes power hitters, and he doesn't really care much about defense. That's a fact. He said as much. He said he was going to change his ways, which I haven't seen. But he said he's starting to realize that defense matters more than he thought. Okay. But what he likes is the power hitter who doesn't hit for a high average and Sandy minimizes or at least has minimized the role of defense. And that's who's on this team for the most part. The way he's, he spent $39 million on Jay Bruce. Jay Bruce fits that profile of player. Not good defensively, not athletic, but could hit home runs. Sandy has taken the money he's been given, and he's chasing a certain player profile. He's not diversifying the offense in any way. He's not looking for guys who can play defense, not looking for speed, not looking for a balanced portfolio, you know, to use that analogy. Look at the Braves. Look at the team the Mets just played the last 48 hours. 
they have young, fast, athletic players like Swanson and Albies up top. They've got the power hitter in the middle in Freddie Freeman. Markakis is a very good defensive outfielder for an average. You know, they've got different ways to score. And guess what? The Mets aren't scoring runs because they have one flipping way to score flipping runs. That's why. That's why they're not scoring. And this pisses me off to no end. The, the team doesn't score because they only have one way to score. And then, and then adding to that, they play shitty defense. We all see it. And the, this is the profile of player this man likes. This is who he's brought here, and this is who's failing. So I look at him first and the Wilpon second. That's my opinion. You know, I, okay, Mike, I will uh, uh, frame this in two ways. Uh, first with a question, and then, uh, yeah, I guess with another question, actually. Um, uh, so, Sandy Alderson, is he the Terry Collins of general managers? Um, and that one made me chuckle when I thought it. Uh, but, and, and, and if I know that you don't want to stay in-house, but is it time to give John Rico his due and see what the young up-and-coming general manager could possibly do. Uh, because right now, Sandy Alderson is stuck in his ways. Uh, it's similar in, in fashion, although he's had more success than Phil Jackson did in his tenure in uh, in the general manager seat. But what 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 do you think of all that? John Rico's my worst nightmare. I can't put it another way. I agree with everything Rich said, by the way. Uh, this team is built not unlike the Oakland A's and the San Diego Padres. Uh, Rich is absolutely right. Uh, but, no, John Rico is my worst nightmare. Do I have to go into my rant about being inbred? Is that what you want? Because if you think about I mean, it, since I mean, Mike sure, Cashman, but, you know. Well, I, look, this is why I need – this is why I think the Mets need to go off campus because they are, in fact, inbred. Jeff – Frank Cashin brought on board Jerry Hunsicker, Joe McLevain, and Steve Phillips. Steve Phillips, in turn, brought in Jim Duquette and Omar Minaya. Frank Cashin did a stupid thing by giving the reins to Al Harrison. Jerry Hunsicker blew his top and went running to take the Houston Astros general manager's position. Joe McLevain blew his top and took the San Diego Padres general manager's position. Al Harrison turned into a nightmare. That's on Frank Cashin. But here's when Frank Cashin stops being a buffer between ownership and baseball operations. Because, well, he's old and he's retiring at this point. He already elevated by 93. He's elevating himself to CEO, COO, and then he stays on as a consultant. Okay? But when Harrison turns into a nightmare, what does Wilpon do? Who is, by the way, President and now, you know, acting MFIC, if I may say. He dials up Joe McLevain and begs him to come back. And he does. But prior to that, he called up Hunsaker, and Hunsaker told him, go, you know what, yourself. But McLevain agreed and came back, and he did. When it was time to fire him, Fred Wilpon made an in-house hire, Steve Phillips. When it was time to fire him, Fred turned around and made an in-house hire, Jim Duquette, and suppressed him 
and rendered him inconsequential. By that time, and Steve, Steve Phillips was the one who brought in Omar Minaya. He went to take the GM job in, in Montreal. When he fired Steve Phillips, he called up Omar Minaya and begged him, like he begged Joe McLevain, come back, run my club. And Omar did. And that's where we were, all in-house hires. When he was desperate, he called up people and begged them to come back. He has never ventured off campus to seek out a qualified GM. Cashin and Phillips supplied him with all the resources, and he exhausted them all. When it came time to fire Omar, and they went out on this, you know, farcical search for a general manager, they got nowhere until Bud Selleck threw Sandy Alderson in their lap. And right then and there, they hired him Johnny on the spot, and the search for a general manager ended post-haste because they don't know how to go about a search for one. So Sandy Alderson, you know, they walked out with Sandy Alderson. Do we agree with the, what the, he's done here? Maybe or maybe not. But they walked out with Sandy Alderson. He was working in the Dominican Republic at the time. And here we are, we're on the verge of him either retiring again or being fired. And I still don't have the confidence that this ownership can go out off campus and seek a qualified GM. And even if they do, and even if they promote John Rico, he's too tethered to them. That is the problem. And that's what I mean by being an inbred organization. They cannot give this job to John Rico. He is tethered to them. And the biggest problem is meddling. The biggest problem is reactiveness on the part of this ownership. My suggestion is, look, we're not going to get the Wilpots to sell this team but we can certainly bring in a team president of baseball operations to be a buffer between ownership and club and baseball operations. A team president would ensure that ownership's demands and needs get met on the one hand, and on the other hand, make sure that his general manager stays on course, stays between the lines, and gets the job done. But what I need most and foremost is for ownership to stop meddling in day-to-day affairs. I agree with everything Rich said about Sandy Alderson. I do. But on top of it, I'm throwing in ownership, and I do mean Jeff because he is the COO, and he is in charge of all things front office, and I do mean his meddling on top of it all. And that's why this team needs an official title president of baseball operations between the general manager and between ownership. They need someone they can trust that's going to keep their financial thing in line. Because that's all they care about right now. And whatever they do with regards to baseball operations is based on that. Today's budget, tomorrow's budget, too reactionary for Sandy, Sandy Alderson's sake. Okay, he has one thing in mind, and they have another. And that's why everything seems disjointed to us. And there's my rant. I mean, that's the bottom line, though, is that Jeff just needs to back the fuck off. Rich? <laughs> you know, probably, probably. But but at the same I I don't know. I, and I, I don't disagree with anything Mike just said. And I don't disagree that the you know that Jeff meddles and, and the stuff that bothers me the most is when I the stuff Pedro said about you know 
how he talks to the players and tries to force them to play um, if they're injured and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, back the fuck off there, Jeff. You know, that, that's not your place. Um, let these decisions be made by baseball people and the player, you know, and the, the team, the team positions and, and the general manager back off in that regard. Um, but, and you know, it probably spills over to the players they bring in. It probably does. But at the same time, I, I'm ready for, I, I think we need a, a different general manager here. And I like everything Mike said. I agree with everything he said. Go out of house now, you know, find somebody who has a different philosophy Maybe it's time to do what, what the Cubs have done, what the Red Sox have done, and go with a younger general manager who looks at the game in a different way. Um, because, you know, I, I, again, I guess I see Sandy as the first culprit and the Wilpons as two. You know, Mike, I think, sees it reversed, but that's okay. Um, they're, both, they're all culpable in my mind. But, um, but you know, it, it may be – Everything can be solved in, with with one fell swoop, right? Maybe if you get a general manager who's not thrust, who's not in house, and I agree with that, Mike. They need to go out, out off campus. But maybe if um, maybe if you get a general manager who's not a in house and b thrust on you by the commissioner of Major League Baseball, you actually do a search, bring somebody in that then would force the Wilpons away and let this general manager you brought in, this person who you know, after an exhaustive process, has the right philosophy, has a track record of success, then everything starts to come together. You have a new philosophy in the GM office, and the owners as such back away. So maybe we get everything done in one fell swoop there. But to me, John Rico is tethered to the Wilpons. He will do whatever they want. Absolutely. He he would be the wrong answer. Hiring John Rico as GM right now, would be analogous to hiring Tim Tuffle to manage the team when they got rid of Terry, which that was my worst nightmare. They had to get, they had a clean house in the dugout, and and right, you don't want to stick with somebody. Why the hell would you ever hire a bench coach when you're not happy with the way the entire team is performing? Isn't that person part of the problem, right? Right. Uh, no, you know, you're all right. I know is this. All I know is that we're <laughs> not Rico is the bench coach. We're not making this up because it seems like every other week there's always an article about there out there about this one meddling and that one meddling and blah 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 blah. Could you imagine if Michael Fulmer was on this team right now? He's hurt. Could you imagine the blame we'd be, you know, dispersing throughout the organization? Oh wow, another Met pitcher injured. But he happens to be on Detroit right now. But could you imagine if he was here? Now who's who's to blame? His upbringing or something that happened in Detroit? You see, to me, somewhere between Michael Fulmer and Pedro Martinez saying that Jeff Wilpon insisted he pitch, even though he said he wasn't up to it, somewhere in between there, to me, is the truth. Uh, I think I think Sandy Alderson got overexposed eventually. Um, he was able to to build on pitching, and he, and like you said, Rich, you know, you're still seeing that. Um, and Mickey's doing a good job generally with it, and, and the offense is absolutely terrible. And that's where uh, Sandy Alderson's work, uh, putting this team together, and the way the injuries have gone. Although you know Noah Syndergaard is injured as well, uh, we're still having those same kind of issues. And uh, I, yeah, I just think younger is the way to go. You're absolutely right. I mean, the Mets have basically been needing to do what many teams do for many years now. But we 
we've got the Wilpons, who are, are the most brain-dead uh, organizational philo- philosophical ownership that we have in baseball right now. And, and, and maybe that's not true. Maybe other teams might be able to argue it as well. But I, I think we, as we have chronicled over the years on these podcasts, have a pretty good uh, start to a thesis, I would say. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, that's just where it all comes down to. And, and I don't know whether bringing a young guy in that's not John Rico would be the uh, answer because the Wilpons are the Wilpons, and they're still going to be knee-jerk about it. And, um, you know, we've seen it influence the way Sandy goes about things. And I'm really can, – can we uh, start from here about – I'm just tired of hearing these press conferences with Sandy Alderson telling us why things suck. Rich? Well, the the thing that I was driving home the night that they played the Cubs, the first game of the four-game Cubs series, and, you know, they had a lot of his press conference on, and that's when he said, well, you know, everybody talks about how you were 11-1 and one, and, and then you, you know, shit the bet after that, but did anybody talk about how we're 8-8 eight and eight over our last 16? What? You're try- you, you, you told the fans that you have a team that you think is going to compete, and you're taking bows for being 500 over your last 16? What is that about? And and then he has these press conferences where he well, he took full accountability yesterday, which okay, fine. But um, but then I don't like the way he threw Cespedes under the bus in that very same press conference. He basically said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he basically said it's a chronic thing, and you know, and he and Cespedes may have to learn to play with it and play through it because it might never fully get better. And but you don't call the guy out like that to the press. I mean, and, and why do you think Cespedes came out and, although what he said was factually correct, that he didn't think that if he comes back it's going to automatically change things, but I'm sure he's got a chip on his shoulder now. And, you know, and then other things. It's just, you know, some of his press conferences and the stuff he says, and um, I, I don't know. It's just, I think his time has come and gone, too. I really do. Yeah, I think it's just slowly but surely. I can't right now see anything turning any any of this around. I mean, as good as they looked and as promising as I thought they'd be, just based off of the way they were winning games at the beginning of it, uh, with getting the big hit and and putting the run, moving the runner over, they were playing sound fundamental baseball other than Jose Reyes. But uh, it, this this stretch, uh, I just I I can't see unless. Sandy has something really nifty up his sleeves with however you can construct this 40-man into 25. Mike, I just don't see anything necessarily changing this year, and I think they're just going to continue to sputter. Well, what they can change is their focus and their plan and their conviction and their direction. That they can change. Uh, With regards to the media, you know, when they put microphones in front of your face, they demand answers, and I, I, for the most part, I, I, I don't think people are getting the truth for the most part. You know, I, I, people don't really want to reveal what they're really thinking. You know, so in the, in, in the spur of the moment, you got to come up with stuff. And, you know, it comes out like blah, 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 blah. I try to weed oh, through a lot of what people say. You know, I try well, to I weed mean, through like, and I, I pick Collins. and choose what I'm going to listen to and what I'm going to ignore. 
Terry Collins was Terry an entertainer. Collins really no. wanted to he say. was fun. Look, look what he really wanted to say. Look what he really wanted to say. He was fun. But as far as this team, oh, you know, we need help. And we certainly need to get better fundamentally. I mean, this, the defensive play lately has just been embarrassing. It really has. Uh, and, and they should feel embarrassed about it because they're major leaguers, and, and what they've been doing is just performing way under par. And it's very, it, it really is unacceptable if you think about it. I mean, if Callaway's got to get that get, get them back out there and do old-fashioned infield practice, well, then by all means do it. You know, but that that can change this year. Uh, I don't know what we're going to do about Cespedes, but this is the reputation that he brought with him. Uh, we all knew that. And I knew that, and I was willing to take that chance. Well, here we are, and we're, we're living out our worst, our, our worst fears. But we knew that going into it. Uh, I knew it going into it, but I was willing to take that chance. Uh, some you win, some you lose. I hope, you know, he still has something in him. He can come back and, and help push this team forward because the record is outstanding when he's in the lineup, and it's dismal when he's out of the lineup. Uh, the other guys they need to get their act together as well. We're talking veterans here. We're not talking, you know, younglings. Uh, so there's something to be said for that. Uh, but going back to Rich and, and Sandy Alderson, this is where I, 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 you know, put a lot of blame on Sandy Alderson because, you know, we spent 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 rebuilding. Those were long years of a rebuild. And then, lo and behold, we won the National League pennant. We went to the World Series, and we made the playoffs the next year. But we turned into a win-now team. And in the blink of an eye, the positional players on this team are all old. And that really makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. They're all old. I mean, all right, they DFA'd Gonzalez, but we still have more old guys to deal with. Reyes is next. They're not DFA'ing yet. They did, maybe they didn't. Maybe I didn't get my news in time. I don't know. You know, but like you say, Sam, the prescription is getting younger. Now, they don't have anything much to rely on on the farm, but they can cast away a lot of these bodies at the deadline for, you know, to contending teams and do something, you know. Uh, and, and drafting, we know, has been miserable, and Manai is back, and maybe he'll turn it around, and we'll see the results of that in a couple of years. Let's not forget Paul DePodesta was responsible for those first three or four drafts. He's the one who drafted Brandon Nimmo, not necessarily Alderson. And when DePodesta left, Alderson went college crazy. And that's how Conforto came came about. But they got to do a better job there. So in a lot of respects, yeah, a lot of this is on Alderson in and of his general manager performance. You know, I, I will just throw the Wilpons on top of it to compound the problem. That's all. What, but you, you look, I, can things turn around? We're not that far out. We're not double digits out. Health uh, and, and playing the game the right way, we could find ourselves still competing for the second wild card, I think. I predicted that in the beginning of the season, and there's really no reason to turn back on that now if things you know, work out and we get some luck and they do things the right way and learn from their mistakes. By golly, I hope you're right, Mike. You and and you may be. You may be. But right now it's 
I've never seen such an offensive stretch. And I, I, um, I, it's just, it's just unbelievable. Just every you want a ray of hope? You want a ray of hope? They're all sucking at the same time, really badly. Hopefully, they all get hot at the same time. How do you like that? Because the baseball second is a game all, of averages. The second they all get hot, the second they all get hot, that's the second all these bullpen uh, leads are, are being blown. It's just baseball it's just is a game of averages. This can't continue forever. Hopefully not. But we also have some sick competition this year in the National League East, and, and who knows where we're going. And and I'm, I'm going to segue back over, since this is such a backwards episode, we're going to go over to the 1911 teams of the National League of New York. The 1911 Brooklyn Dodgers, we're going to start with them, Mike, and we're going to start, uh, I'm sure you have some uh, tidbits on them, but they, they didn't do too well. They were 64 and 86, finished seventh. They were still in the third rendition of Washington Park, and they averaged seventh and eighth with 269,000 of attendance. And, Mike, you know, what, what, what stands out to you for the 1911 Brooklyn Dodgers team who had to compete with a juggernaut in, uh, in their own city? Yeah, well, that just comes with the territory. That's baseball, facility. Uh But you stole my thunder. Yeah, this was the last year in Washington Park. Uh, they would be moving into uh, Ebbets Field shortly. Uh, and Charlie Evans had to sell half his stake in the team just to finance that to uh, Mr. Edward McKeever and his brother Stephen McKeever. That is right. Uh, it, it it didn't go so well. And actually, I think because of that, they had so many delays and they were not able to start the uh, season until 1913. They weren't able to open Evans Field until 1913. So, I think that they played uh, begrudgingly at Washington Park for one more year. And uh, manager Bill Dolan. Some people argue that he should be in the Hall of Fame, but the biggest knock against him, he he holds the record for most errors by a shortstop. Otherwise, you know, there's a good case there. He was their manager. Yeah, but, I mean, he was part of what? I guess he was just basically part of four championship teams. That's pretty... Good, but they uh, he was Brooklyn, the Giants, class. Chicago, Boston, all in the National League. Oh, he was in the Giants too. Well, okay. I thought he had just come from the Orioles. Um, the big, the the uh, the player that really jumps out here is Zach Wheat. Uh, he had a two eighty seven average, three thirty two on base percentage, five home runs, seventy six RBIs. Those, those are a lot of RBIs for that that era, Mike. A young Zach Wheat, yeah, uh, without a doubt. And and he's a Hall of Famer, correct? Yes. And Jack Daubert hit three oh seven with a three sixty six on base percentage, had forty five RBIs with five home runs in this uh this year. But hey, they didn't do too well. And um Bill Dolan, he was still uh, – I was thinking Ned Hanlon, but excuse me. Bill Dolan was the manager, of course, uh, when I was talking about the Baltimore Orioles. I'm sorry. Uh, Ned Hanlon, but that's another conversation for another day. Uh, the 1911 New York Giants, uh, Mr. Mister Mike, um, they finished uh, They finished first in the National League this year with a 99-54 record, but unfortunately – lost the World Series to Connie Mack's Philadelphia Athletics. 
There's a lot to talk any, about here, and I'm going to let you start with it. Any team would have lost to Connie Max Athletics that year. That team was stacked. But this was also the year of uh, the fire at, at the Polo Grounds, 1911. You know, they managed to renovate it, whatever damage happened within a couple of months. It reopened the same season, but nevertheless, there was a fire that knocked out a good portion of the grandstand. That's that's remarkable, and and this was already in the cement, the steel and, and concrete. Uh, well, that's when correct? they went. That's when they went full steel and concrete after the fire, the renovation that they incorporated. That otherwise, uh, going into it, uh, Polo Grounds was still being called the uh, Brush Stadium, John T. Brush Stadium, uh, in uh, honor mm. of their former owner. Yeah. Well, the Manhattan the Manhattan folk uh, brought in six hundred seventy five thousand first in the National League in attendance. Uh and they they had um they had some names that are very familiar to to uh uh big baseball fans but well especially Merkel, Fred Merkel. Um because uh I don't it didn't happen this year but there was the Merkel Boner one year, Mike. Merkel Boner, yeah. But uh this particular year you look at them and uh tell you 12 home runs, 84 RBIs, uh, 283 batting average. Not too, not too shabby. Not too shabby for for 1911. Is this the greatest top of the rotation of all time in Christy Matthewson and Rube Marquardt? It was a massive top two. I'll say that much. Uh, <laughs> and then you had you Red Ames of the two. You want to go top two? Yeah, I mean it's up there. You know they 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 would make a strong. I case. mean this entire rotation. This entire rotation just basically had a bad fifth starter, but they, they didn't have fifth starters back then. Um, they basically only had really three starters. Christy Matthewson pitched 307 innings. Rube Marquardt pitched 277.2 innings. And Red Ames uh, pitched 205 innings. Hooks Wilsey rounds the whole thing out uh, with a 327 ERA, the, the – the, uh, worst of the top four, uh, with 187.1 innings. So they rested on their their top three a lot for the entire season, and then Lou Drucky with 75 innings rounded out with a 4.04 ERA. So, yeah. uh, Rich, um, I, uh, I'm going to segue over uh, with uh, to you having heard all that that information. But first, I'm going to end with the fact that there is a Burt Maxwell from this National League pennant-winning squad. Very cool. Very cool. And um, so about 1911, you know, obviously I'm not nearly the historian you guys are, and I'm impressed by your knowledge. But as I'm looking here, poking around online, the thing that still amazes me that in 1911 the Yankees are still called the Highlanders. And um, I know you guys talked about the two National League teams. The Yankees that year finished 76 and 76. So here are my observations. In 1911, they somehow found a way to play 100 and, if my math is correct, 52 games. And when you think about that, right, granted baseball wasn't even as far west as, I think, St. Louis yet. It might have been as far west as about Cincinnati at that point. But still, you know, these teams had to travel via train. Um, you know, via, uh, geez, who the hell knows? I mean, horse and car, I don't know, because the cars were, were, you know, pretty scarce at that point. 
and they still managed to play 152 games. I find that fascinating. Um, and then secondly, the attendance. <laughs> the Yankees drew 302,000 people over 152 games, so let's assume 76 of them were at home. Um, so 76 into 302,000. So you're talking about an average crowd of less than 5,000 people. And just think about that. Think about that. How different the world was trying to play 152 games and you're traveling by maybe by streetcar, maybe by train, drawing, you know, 4,000 people per game. Compare that to, you know, a thousand, uh, 100 years later, excuse me, 100 years later, what we what we look at now. I mean, now now spring training games draw more than that. You know, they play 162 games. They fly all over the place. Baseball, you know, goes as far west as, you know, obviously the West Coast, and there are even some games in other countries now. Just think about the progress. That's what, that's what jumps out at me. I love it. Hilltop Park 2, yeah, Hilltop Park 2 is real small. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, in fact, I, I, I might be very well wrong, but does Columbia play in the exact spot up where Hilltop Park used to be? Columbia Presbyterian is, in fact, in the same spot as Hilltop Park, and there was, and put that in quote, there was a uh, plaque of home plate in the exact position where it was uh, given to the hospital by the Yankees, I forgot what year, and it was there across the street from the hospital, uh, but they removed it when they renovated the gardens. And I went there earlier this year trying to chase it down, and that's when I found this out. And the word is that they'll re, they'll be replacing it sometime this year. And as soon as I find something out, I'll let you know. But home plate doesn't fact exist. Wow. Former site of Hilltop Park. See, I I I didn't know that it was the hospital. I I was talking about where they the uh, the Ivy League team plays. No, no, Hilltop Park was at Columbia Presbyterian. Okay, so that's so yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. Perfect. Um, That's yeah. So that's interesting, and and like you said, Rich, it is it is pretty remarkable, and that the Giants were the cream of the crop when it came to attendance. I mean, I'd I'd have to actually go back to to the AL. Let's see, 1911 uh, AL. Let's see how the American League was drawing back then, but you know, it, you didn't even break a million, and, and these guys are already starting to go into some of these bigger stadiums, you know. And obviously, the the um, uh, what's it called? The I, I don't think that like fifty two thousand at the time. I think is what the Polo Grounds ended up uh, holding, and that was probably even a lot for the time. Um, I, I, I think a lot of circumstances led to it not being a sold-out game at the uh, shot heard around the world in 1951. But even that day, uh, which was, you know, a random game that nobody knew about uh, on a work day, uh, only drew like 34,000 people. So uh, there, there was just a different beast. I mean, especially when you look at these ballparks now, the the object of the the entire thing is basically to get – to get as many people in there, whether or not they care about baseball. And mm-hmm. then, I mean, you basically had nothing else to to um, to really do or discuss, and you had to, you know, your children were going to sit there and watch the game with you because it's not like you, they, uh, they could go out to the kids' fest 
with Mr. Met out in, in, in the center field. So it was just a much different world. Uh, the Philadelphia Athletics of 1911, the World Series winners, uh, of course, had the, the best attendance at 605-749 in the, the uh, uh, American League. And I think without further ado, um, Mike, is there anything else you would like to say about the uh, 1911 New York baseball season? Go uh, Giants, you know. John McGraw was just starting his <laughs> empire. And that's, in fact, what New York was, his empire, for a while. Good for him. That's right. History and and, and get, what about you, history Rich? That, history that doesn't get enough mention in New York City. It, it gets all dodgy talk and whatnot. Uh, Giants, under very underrated uh, in this city. Yeah, that is true. And San Francisco and the actual Giants seem to do a real good job of honoring their legacy here in New York. Uh, Rich, anything that, uh, before we, we move on uh, comes to your mind? The only other thing, and, and this is not particular to 1911, but um, sometimes I think about, and I'm not sure you guys ever had the same thought, but if you could just snap your fingers and, and be at a game in 19, pick a year, 45, walking around the ballpark, just looking at what it's like, seeing how much a hot dog was, how much, even if they even sold beer at ballpark how much a soda was, what they offered concession-wise, just what the vibe was. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine doing that? And, and even going as far back as 1911, just, just sitting there, you know, watching a game, knowing what you know now, what the world is now, but just being there for those couple hours and, and taking that scene in and knowing how different it was. The game is the same, 90 feet, you know, nine innings, three outs and all that stuff, but how different everything is now, it, it, that, that's where my head goes. Yeah, I mean, I basically have to make sure that I get changed from Doc Brown that is, is period-specific to make sure nobody looks at it and sees 1985 on it. But at the same time, uh, uh, you know, I, I I want that hot dog immediately, and, and uh, I, I definitely need to get a Dodge Dog in the field. That is the first thing I would do. Mike, you know, wouldn't... Would you say that's the first thing you would do if you could snap your fingers is specifically in Ebbets Field uh, time? <laughs> I'm torn. Uh, I'm torn between going back to 55, uh, but lately I, I'm just on this 19th century kick, and I wouldn't mind going back to the 1850s and catching the old Brooklyn Atlantic, so the Excelsiors. Uh, you should catch. You should catch the New York Metropolitans of the 1880s. The New York Metropolitans as well, but you know what? They were a Manhattan team, so uh, Brooklyn all the way, man. This is where, this is where uh, baseball sprung from the crib. I won't say it was born here, but this is where it sprung forward from the crib and became great. Brooklyn before Cooperstown, it was Brooklyn. Yes, that is right, and and but it's underappreciated. It was underappreciated then for its baseball lore, and it's underappreciated now, and. You do a great job of keeping everything, everybody up to date, not only uh, via here, but up to date on the history <laughs> via here, as well as your uh, your website, Shameless Plug, uh, Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, blogger excuse me. Um, I'm not sure what a blogger is, but we're going to find out soon enough. It might be something in the, in the uh, uh, Star Wars Solo universe. And there's my, my uh, digression before the last word. Everybody go see Solo. It's not doing well at the box office, and it's the best Star Wars film since 1983 and the best Lucas film 
since Indiana, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That is top-notch what I believe. I've seen it six times in theaters. Uh, apparently, Boycott Solo is a thing. But anyway, enough about Star Wars. We're talking about the Nets, and we're leading to our last word. Uh, 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 <laughs> Mike, let's start with you. What's your last word? Uh, don't panic. You know, for as much as I rant and rave, don't panic. Uh, been there, done that, seen worse. Well, maybe not. I mean, <laughs> maybe not that anemic batting average over a 10 games. Uh, but, uh, you know, what can I say? We need improvement. We need to uh, improve fundamentally. You know, start from scratch. When, when things go awry like this, you stop, you take a, brief, a, de- a deep breath, and, and you start again from the beginning, and you start with the basics, and you proceed forward again. It's like a rewind, a reboot. That's all they need, a reboot. Hopefully some of these guys come back healthy and we can move forward, get above 500, and, and, you know, maybe put a hook in that second wild card spot. Reboot. Reboot. Rich. I guess my word um, would not be a word in the English language, but uh, the one I'm going to use is UGH. And the reason I say U-G-H, and the reason I say that is because you know, as true fans of the team, you know, I, I read on Twitter these people say, I'm taking a mental break from the Mets. I'm taking a week off, taking two weeks off. I can't take it anymore. I, I wish I was like that, but I can't. Um, it's a quintessential train wreck to me. I have to look. I, I can't miss a game when I'm traveling on business. I track the game on game day. You know, I don't miss a pitch. And um, and it's tough right now. It is. Um, it, it's because it's hard to look away when it's in your in your soul like this. And it's painful and all that. Um, you try to keep perspective that it's just a game, but it bothers the living crap out of you, and it bothers the living crap out of me, I should say. Um, so it's a big ug right now. But to Mike's point, and I, I'm going to go back to something Mike said uh, 10 minutes ago, which is it, it can't continue. These are major league players. Even if they aren't the best major league players, they're better than this. They're going to get out of this slump eventually because – Everybody does. And they, this is historic. And there's a reason it's historic. It means it's unprecedented. So they've got to, even if they become mediocre offensively or C-minus offensively, with the starting pitching, they've got to start winning some games. Now, will that be enough to get them to contention? I don't know. 500? I don't know. But I keep telling myself, I was convinced they were going to win both games in Atlanta. I was. Because I thought the game against the Yankees was going to get them going, and it didn't. And but I, the logical side of my brain says, eventually this is going to change. It has to. Logic, you know, math, statistics, all those things. The emotional side of my brain says, "Ugh." So that's my last word. Yeah, uh, my last word is, you don't give up hope, though. So, you got to stick with hope. Hope is my last word, but I, this is the most pessimistic I've I've ever been. I, I've kind of played into the the cynicism, and probably just because of my current state in general, might be a, a little bit wobbly. Getting better and 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 weirdly cathartic, and and maybe that's that's what weirdly the Mets needed is just one more wake up call after an eleven to one start. 
that, you know, some of the worst offensive stretches in baseball history, let alone Mets history. Um, maybe they need to take a look in the mirror. Maybe that's what we were talking about. What needs to change? Maybe, you know, another hitting this, the fact that, uh, Pat, what was it? Pat Russell, Ro- Rosler, somebody, Rosler. Pat Rosler, Pat Rosler. Is the main, he's the main hitting coach, correct? Yes. Well, you know, they're, this is the worst offensive stretch in baseball history, it seems, apparently, <laughs> <laughs> according, you know, with certain things. Uh, Elias mentioned something that Gary or Howie or, or see, you know, I'm, I'm completely foggy about exactly how bad this team is, but apparently somebody has said, oh, yeah, this is, this is really bad, uh, you know, officially. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I don't I, – I think that's almost what – is needed again, but every time it's just we go through two years of success, and then here we are again talking about uh, you know a general manager who's worn out as welcome and a new manager that's not doing too hot and probably shouldn't have even been there in the first place. I mean, we're on our way to potentially something more devastating than 1993 in some fashion, and maybe we shouldn't go there yet, but maybe. You know, they have to turn this around from an offensive standpoint, really. Otherwise, we're looking down the barrel of a shotgun that is going to throw us into talks for the, some of the worst teams of all time. And, you know, they always seem to look back at, like, 2013. They were kind of on a, on a similar track. They were, like, 15 and 30 at some point or something. They were 15 games under 500. And they didn't, you know, they didn't lose 90 games. They didn't even come close to it. And uh, they played 500 baseball for the rest of the way. And your favorite, Rich, uh, uh, Eric Young Jr., helped lead the way at the top. So, you know, who knows? You guys are absolutely right. This this could all change. Uh, but they need to start showing us some serious signs. And Sandy Alderson and the front office. And maybe even the Wilpons really need to take a look in the mirror for once in their their baseball life. Jeff doesn't seem to be learning anything about how to run a baseball team. He put himself in there at the beginning. He was like, I can run a baseball team. And he's had some rocky situations along the way without Madoff money. He's learned some things probably, uh, but it doesn't seem to be completely sticking. And it's just at some point you got to take a look at yourself and figure out what's working. So, Hey, I'm not there. Jeff might tell me to to uh, fuck off as well, just like I'm telling him to fuck off. But uh, as far as I can see, based off of the evidence, and and Good Fundies laid it out really well in an article the other day, uh, laid out all the different instances where the Wilpons have meddled, and you see a pattern of what's going on. Will Jeff Wilpon is micromanaging everything. And it has to stop. And that's the biggest thing. As much as they want to sell us hope, because that's the problem, is that that's in weirdly the way that that they're able to keep the charade going is that you got to believe. It's all right. He, Jeff Wilpon's the one who handed out the underdog T-shirt. Jeff Wilpon's the one who did it. So he knows what's going on. He's he's not stupid Is as as stupid as some of these moves that he makes as chief operating officer are, he's not stupid. And, and, and it does weirdly enough play into what the Mets are all about, but you can't keep collapsing like this. And earlier and earlier every year, 
and think you're going to be able to financially stave off all the debt that you have to pay back. We're not going to deal with it. And just like some fans who don't like The Last Jedi with Star Wars are boycotting a great movie in Solo, the Mets, which is a great franchise and aesthetic and presentation and aura and idea, but the idea is not being presented properly. And there, some people are going to finally just be, are just going to say enough is enough. And it's going to be worse than ever before, worse than the 70s, especially now when grading on a curve of how everything is. So they've got to watch out, and so does baseball, because you can't have that happen. And that's my last word, hope. <laughs> but something's got to change. Hope and change. Uh, it, you know, those are weird political words, but the, the, the Wilpons got to show me something, and... and It's got to be something real soon, somehow, some way. I mean, I would still be going to games, but I'm in Denver, so what are you going to do? And without further ado, I bring us to the end of episode 11. Uh, you know, Mike, Rich, it's always uh, great to have you guys on board, and, and and it's always great to be able to get these podcasts going. It, 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 like Star Wars, it's quite the escapism, even when the Mets are doing poorly. Agreed. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to a Metsian podcast. Uh, We couldn't do it without you, and the only way to ever finish any of these is Let's Go Mets. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night. Good night, guys. Have a great night.